and welcome to Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership Podcast. My name is Ruth Haley Barton, and I'm founder of the Transforming Center, and I'm here with Steve Weins, Senior Pastor of Genesis Covenant Church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. Steve is also a Transforming Community alumni, which means we spend a lot of time laughing, growing, and being transformed in the presence of Christ in community with other leaders. Well, hey, everybody, welcome to episode two of Seeking God in the Crucible of Ministry. This one's called The Place of Our Own Conversion. So we're going to pick it up. You already mentioned this, Ruth, but when Moses had his first son, he named him Gershom, saying, I've been an alien residing in a foreign land. So where is Moses when this happens? And how does it speak to his identity Mm -hmm. crisis? And you mentioned this last time, but keep going. Well, Moses has now entered into a deep experience of solitude. So he runs away to Midian. He settles down by a well. In Scripture and in Christian tradition, the well is often a symbol for the depths the depths of our own souls, not to mention the fact that in the New Testament, the well is also a symbol of Jesus as our living water. So the, the well is a powerful symbol in this story that Moses is settling down into himself, and he's now touching the depths of his own soul, which is what happens for us in solitude, whether we know about it or not. Um, or whether we know what solitude is and how it functions. It just, it happens. People who are, go to jail, I mean, who aren't even believers when they enter into jail, they find that solitude gets them in touch with things. They don't even have to know what it is for solitude to do its good work. So Moses has taken his untransformed self and his destructive leadership stuff into solitude. He's now settling into himself. And while he's there at the well, there are some shepherd girls that come. They try to water their sheep, and they can't get near the well because there's some unruly shepherds who won't let them get near. And Moses springs into action again, um, trying to help the underdog. (laughs) And he this time is able to actually help without killing anyone, which is always a sign of leadership transformation in my mind. (laughs) If, If we can lead without killing anyone, we're doing very well. So... Moses has helped, and so she goes back to her father Jethro, and he says, why are you back so early? And she says, well, there was this guy at the well, and he helped us, and so Jethro said, we'll bring him here. And so Moses comes to meet Jethro, and actually, I think that Jethro is kind of a spiritual director figure in this story, because later on, Jethro is is the one that says, the way you're living is not sustainable for you. So I think Jethro becomes sort of a spiritual mentor for him. Um and so Moses sort of settles into life there, and he marries Zipporah, the girl that he had helped at the well. They have a child, names his son Gershom. And this, the fact that he names his son as a way of naming his own issues shows that Moses is now in touch with what's going on inside him and what has d- driven his the destructive aspects of his leadership. Because Moses is a leader, and we know Moses is going to lead and lead people in a good way, but his leadership needed to be refined through his encounters with God. And so in that way, we see that this solitary, non-public existence that Moses is now in, inside of is actually doing really, really good work. And he's now able to, able to name some of his inner dynamics and open them up to God so that God can come in and start to settle him down and, and do God's transforming work. Wow. And how long has it been since the murder and this time? Do we know in the scriptures? Well, we do know that he was in the wilderness for 40 years before he emerges into leadership. So what I like to say is that Moses's only seminary experience was the uh, seminary of silence and brokenness. Yes. That was his leadership development process. You know, nothing educational, nothing intellectual, but it was the seminary of silence and brokenness. And the reason why I ask that is just 
I think, again, so many of us want, uh, we want to face our brokenness, mm-hmm. but then we want it to be fixed pretty quickly mm-hmm. so we can right. get back into the action. Mm-hmm. Right. So if it takes a while, you're in good company. Right, absolutely. So it's clear that Moses had some family of origin issues. Mm-hmm. That's obvious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that affected his identity crisis yeah. mm-hmm. and his brokenness. What are some of the common family of origin issues that you see in leaders mm-hmm. today that we all have to face? Mm-hmm. Well, an extreme example would be being a child of an alcoholic um, because there are patterns that develop when one lives in the home of an alcoholic. So um, oftentimes people who have lived in that kind of environment early on, they have learned how to um, really read the room and know when things are getting volatile so they can become compliant or make themselves invisible. Um Oftentimes there is a deep sense of unworthiness because they feel like maybe they could have fixed it if they had been a better child or whatever, they could have fixed it. Um, there's also oftentimes an uneasy relationship with truth because whatever's going on in the home feels very shameful. And so oftentimes there's a, they get very, very accomplished at presenting to the world that everything's okay when it's mm-hmm. really not. Mm-hmm. Um, so an uneasy relationship with truth because the truth is too painful and too shameful. And so as children, this serves really, really well. It serves well for a child to be able to be compliant or to make oneself scarce or whatever, to be placating. Um, because in some cases, it might have kept you alive if you knew how to do that. But later on as an adult, you know, those patterns don't don't help you well in your leadership or in your intimate adult relationships. So that's an extreme example. And people who have had that as a part of their past, many of them take real responsibility for themselves by entering into the Children of Alcoholics Anonymous and things like that. But there's some others that are a little bit more subtle. So for instance, if you are As a leader, you were um, born into a family where the father was stern and demanding, and you never got that full and unconditional, I love you. A leader like that can find themselves always on a performance treadmill, always trying for that experience of I love you from the father figure. And one of the things that can happen here, too, is that you can find yourself in an odd relationship with a father figure type person in your in your leadership environment. So if you're an associate pastor and your your senior pastor is a male strong leader type and you find yourself always seeking their approval and it's not really about the ministry at all. It's about that little child in you who never got what they needed and you're just trying to get it from this person. That's really unhealthy and it's not going to help your relationship with the person who is now a colleague for you. And there can be a kind of drivenness that results because you're just always trying to get that that unconditional I love you. Um, a leader who's raised in a punishing environment or where there is an inordinate emphasis on being good and being perfect can develop perfectionistic tendencies. And the reason we get those tendencies is because we're trying to keep feelings of shame and inadequacy at bay by being perfect. If I can be perfect, then I don't have to feel my feelings of shame. And of course, the longer this perfectionism remains unacknowledged, it means that we're not only uh, demanding too much of ourselves, but we usually start demanding too much of other people too. We, We expect them to be perfect as well. And our standards are so high that nobody can live up to them. And oftentimes you can tell when a person like this is in a leadership all the people around them keep leaving, Mm. you know, because they just can't ever measure up and they're tired of living under that kind of pressure. A leader who experienced not being wanted at conception or birth, um, Mm. and there are those who have had a sense, a long-term sense that they weren't wanted, they have basic self self-worth issues, mm. basic self-doubt, and they develop patterns of hiding themselves from others because they're afraid of 
the rejection. They, they don't want to experience the same kind of rejection that they felt in their early years. And what that means is that persons like that don't enter in easily into real authentic relationships with others because they're so afraid of rejection and feeling like they're not wanted. Um, a leader who has experienced profound loneliness or abandonment or loss just can develop a very busy lifestyle in order to avoid feeling anything. So there's an emotional numbness that they're that they try to maintain by staying really, really busy and really, really um, driven, if you will. A place, uh, you know, where a, a leader has lived in a place of scarcity, where there's been a, a lack of even some of the basic needs being met, can develop a scarcity mentality that always keeps them feeling like there's not enough. And it's hard for them to trust God, that there's enough in God. So they're always afraid and always afraid of taking risks because they're afraid that there won't be enough. And, you know, we, we joke about this with a depression mentality, that people who went through the depression have a fundamentally different mentality than we do, um, than those of us who didn't live in that kind of scarcity. Well, the same can happen if, if in our family of origin we experience scarcity and not enoughness. We can live that out in our adult patterns without knowing it. Um, <clears throat> a person who was raised in a volatile environment as a child where it was unpredictable and there was a lot of uncontrolled anger can be very afraid of conflict, very afraid of strong feelings and not even be able to stay in the room when there's a conflict that needs to be dealt with because they never saw conflict dealt with in a positive, productive way. So whenever there's even a hint that there's going to be a conflict, they are out the door and they cannot stay in the room. Well, imagine a leader who can't stay present with conflict. You cannot be a good leader if you can't stay present with conflict and work within conflict in positive, productive, and fruitful ways. So you can see how all these family of origin patterns can actually diminish our effectiveness as leaders until God gets a hold of us. And by God's grace, we begin to see some of these things. So, you know, it's painful sometimes to have to face into our family of origin experiences and how they've shaped us. But at the same time, I like to remind people that it is a grace of God. If God begins to bring this awareness to us, we need to see it as a grace that God is actually inviting us to maturity. God is actually inviting us to greater freedom and greater effectiveness in our leadership by allowing us to see the ways we've been shaped and misshaped by our early experiences. So I want to pause and kind of look at the camera for a second and talk to the listeners and say, you might want to pause, rewind, and listen to that list again. Uh, for me, Ruth, as you were talking I noticed at least two mm -hmm. of those realities yeah. were true for me based on my family of origin. Mm -hmm. And I think that many of us get into ministry to heal our mommy daddy mm -hmm. issues. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yes, it's a call from God mm -hmm. and it is. Yeah. And I think in God's grace, God somehow uses uh, that the healing that mm -hmm. comes from the brokenness to yeah. lead to greater healing. But the title of this episode is The Place of Our Own Conversion. Mm -hmm. And you're not talking about... Um, salvation. Salvation. No. You're talking about a different kind of conversion. Mm -hmm. Would you talk more about that as it mm -hmm. relates to our family of origin issues and the crucible mm -hmm. of ministry? Yeah. Well, first of all, let's just say that if we stay in ministry long enough, God's going to use the crucible of leadership to surface these things. Yeah. Um, we have this initial euf euphoria about leadership, but the truth is if we stay at this long enough, God's going to use this very thing, this very thing called leadership to press us into these issues if we're willing to accept that and to receive it. So in our Christian tradition, we understand conversion as being a turning around, you know, 
turning around and doing something new. It's metanoia, you know. And so here we're talking about turning around from old childish patterns. And I believe this is what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, when I was a child, I did childish things. But now that I'm a man, I am putting away childish things. And I think he is not referring to toys. I think, I or think, boats. Yeah, or boats or anything like that. He is talking about turning away from those childish patterns that emerged out of our family of origin and growing up mm-hmm. and becoming a, an adult person and acting like an adult rather than acting like a child who needs certain things to be a certain way in order to be able to function. Um, it's a hard thing. It's also a very hopeful thing to think of being an adult and not being bound up by the things that bound us up as we were children. So the process of being in leadership will actually be an invitation to face some of those family of origin things. So when, when our ineffective leadership exposes something like that, the encouragement is to say, don't just blame it on everybody else. Don't look out there and say, that's your fault or your fault or your fault. When those moments come, wonder with God, is there something about this situation that's about me, that's mine to own? And that is a prayer that God is very faithful to answer because God loves us enough to want us to grow up. And so if we pray that prayer and make ourselves available to God, God will usually be faithful to show us, yeah, this kind of does go back to something yeah. in you. And, you know, that that, they, that other person might have had something to do with this, but you have your own part to play in it as well. Gosh. Ruth, a lot of the people that I end up talking to are people that used to be in ministry. Mm-hmm. People that went through a big crucible, yeah. and um, and whatever definition that they would give mm-hmm. didn't make it. Yeah. Now they made it; they're still mm-hmm. alive, but they they didn't make it in mm-hmm. ministry. So before we get too far mm-hmm. into this season, I want you to speak to those folks mm-hmm. about how there is some hope in f- still finding God in the crucible of life after ministry. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important question. Yeah. Well, I think for one thing, we can broaden our definition of ministry and say it's not all about just ministering right. in church. So all of us are priests. And according to the New Testament, we are the priesthood of all believers, and all of us are priests and ministers wherever it is that God has placed us. Um I also think, though, that sometimes, like, for instance, I mentioned my own journey, that when I began to face my own drivenness and why I was driven and what I was seeking through success in ministry, that, um, you know, exposed some of what was still unhealthy and and, and broken. I did step off Mm -hmm. the leadership treadmill, and I stepped out for a couple of years. And God eventually brought me back, which is often God's way. But we come back as healthier people who are able to lead in healthier ways and who are in a better and more right relationship with our vision and with the tasks that God has given us to do. So it could be that God, you know, used that crucible to place us right where we belong now and that where we are is absolutely the right place. Or it could be that now that we've come to this awareness and we're more healthy as people, that God might even guide us back into ministry. Either one of those is a fine option as long as we're open and surrendered to God and what he's doing. Yeah. And I think you would say solitude is going to be one of the one of the ways that you're going to mm-hmm. find your life again, right. your life yeah. in God again, mm-hmm. whether whether it's in a mm-hmm. vocational job in right. ministry or not. And so mm-hmm. I want to bring us back. Um, you say that for Moses, solitude really was the place mm-hmm. of his conversion. You've said that before, but I yeah. want you to talk a little bit, bit more about how Moses discovered mm-hmm. the conversion experience yeah. for him. So the the first part was to say that oh. 
my leadership is destructive right now, which yes. he saw clearly and ran. And, and it helped that other people had seen it too, made him afraid. And he realized that I'm going to get myself in trouble if I stay in leadership with this stuff unresolved within me. So he steps out of leadership. And I think he actually gives up on himself as a leader at all. Um, because the next time you know, we really see him, he is now tending sheep and it's Jethro's sheep. He doesn't even own anything anymore. And he's out tending sheep, doing the only thing he knows to do. And I don't think he sees himself as a leader anymore. And I don't think he has aspirations for leadership at all. Um, but as he's doing what God has given him to do in the wilderness, in this solitary, non-public existence, I think for leaders, I want to say, that's why I'm defining this. It's not like he's not seeing people. I mean, he has a family, and he's having children, and he has a wife and all that. But he's in a solitary, non-public existence, which for a leader is pretty different, you know. And so after he's let go of these false self-patterns to the best that he can, and he's even let go of his own images of who he's going to be, it says that he's out tending sheep one day and he stumbles across this bush that's burning and it's not consumed and he says i must turn aside to see this great sight and god seems to have been waiting for moses to be settled enough to be able to actually talk to him about something important and again there's this little cause and effect relationship there that when god saw that moses had turned aside to look he calls to Moses out of the bush. And I think many of us are longing for a word from the Lord, for an encounter with God. And we wonder, why am I not feeling it? Why am I not getting the encounter that I want? For many of us, it's because we don't have any time to turn aside to look and pay attention to what's going on in our lives. So God, I think, is patient. And God's not going to try to tell us important things while we're running through hallways and speeding down the highway and all that. God's waiting to see that there's actually some space for interaction before he calls out to us. And so God does call to Moses because Moses has time. He turns aside to look. And what God wants to tell Moses about and talk to him about is his calling mm -hmm. and what God is calling him to do and to be, actually. Yeah. So um, in solitude, we actually get to experience ourselves as the person that God has created us to be. And many times, especially in Protestant circles, because we're so activistic, we think about calling as being about what we do. But in Moses' story... I see it a little differently. I see that calling is, first of all, about being the person that God has created us to be. We are called to be the person that God has created us to be. And so when God calls Moses it's to do something, it's very connected to who he is. It's because he's an Israelite. It's because he has been a victim, because he knows what it's like to have all your rights taken from you. Um, he has a very natural concern for justice because of the experience that he himself has been through, because he experienced injustice and victimization in his own life. So that gives him a particular sensitivity to people who are find themselves in those kinds of situations. So first of all, God is saying, I see you. I know who you are. You are a Hebrew. No matter how anybody tries to dress you up a different way, no matter how anyone tries to beat it out of you, you are a Hebrew. Nobody can change that. You are a person who's wired for justice. I made you that way. I know who you are. I see you. So we're first called to be the person that God has created us to be and to embrace everything about who we are, including our most painful experiences and to allow that to be a part of, of who we are in God. So we're called to be who God has called us to be, created us to be. Then we're called to belong to the one to whom we belong, you know, so to cultivate our belongingness, to cultivate a relationship with the one who created us and to live and move out of that relationship. And then only thirdly, to do something out of our being and out of our belonging. So if... Our conversion comes from paying attention, mm -hmm. and if paying attention comes, at least in part, through solitude, what would you say to the extroverted mm -hmm. leader who 
is so afraid of solitude. Yeah, yeah. Well, we all need solitude, whether we're an introvert or an extrovert. I tell people that the only thing that your personality type tells you is what is which practices are going to be more difficult for you. So yeah, solitude is going to feel a little threatening and disorienting to an extrovert. But extroverts need solitude because otherwise they might just skate along the surface of their lives and never drop down to the depths that that we see here in Moses's life. And what I've discovered is that many extroverts, while they do, they enter into solitude kicking and screaming, um, and resistant, very resistant. I've I've been, I've guided many extroverts who are actually resistant to solitude, but then once they start to have a significant substantive experience of it. They realize how exhausted even they are at the relating level. They realize that they have been skating on the surface of things for a long time. They realize how hungry they are for something of depth and for an encounter with God that only comes in this way. And so then, you know, they're they're sold. You know, yeah. Uh, it's it's not hard actually. Once an extrovert has been guided and held into a substantial experience, they long for it because they hunger for meaning in their lives as well. They hunger to know the voice of God and to encounter the real presence of God. That is very different than the external stimulation that comes from our extroverted life. Well said. So uh, you write in this chapter about how every leader has a gun, Mm -hmm. a way of protecting ourselves and making ourselves feel safe. But when we use it, it does a ton of damage. We see that clearly Mm -hmm. in Moses uh, with, you know, and and Mm -hmm. I I imagine Moses has to sort of fight this his whole life, um, not to pull out Mm -hmm. his murderous rage and use it. Mm -hmm. Um, How can we learn to put the gun down? Mm. We have to learn to trust something other than that place where we have placed our security. So the gun is where we place our security, depending on our type and our patterns so for some it might be the impetus to control and to power up and i think i think moses was that type of person i think that's how he handled his life was to power up and literally murder people if he couldn't get everything in line there's other people who are going to try really really hard to get other people to love them Mm -hmm. and to express approval to them there are going to be other people who try to get it through perfectionism like that's the way i control my world is by being perfect you know Um, Or I can control my world by getting a lot of information and thinking it through and locking down on all the intellectual rationalization for why I should do this thing. Um, Then there are others who just literally spend their life seeking to avoid pain or seeking to avoid the more, you know, the more meaningful experience. And that's the way they control life is by avoiding anything that's painful. So we really do need to identify that for ourselves. Um, and the Enneagram is a good tool that can help us to identify the gun, you know, the thing that we use to keep control of our existence. Uh, and the only way to put the gun down is to decide to trust something bigger and more than ourselves. Which will probably draw you back into solitude. Yeah. Draw you back into your spiritual mm-hmm. director's office yeah. to say, hey, mm-hmm. I noticed I absolutely blew up mm-hmm. at someone, yeah. or I have avoided this particular conflict mm-hmm. for ten years, yeah, right? Uh, or I am, I am trying to take care of everybody, mm-hmm. and I'm absolutely yeah. just exhausted. wearing myself out. Yeah. I'm, I'm exhausted, mm-hmm. 
and I, I have to find a way to put the gun down. So I think there's a grace mm-hmm. in if if a listener right now is saying any one of those things, yeah. there's a level of exhaustion mm-hmm. you you know you get to yeah. that where conversion is not far away. Right, right. And just the fact that you know what it is, again, let's bring ourselves back. If we can tell some truth about this, we are already on the way, and God will meet us in that place of our truth-telling and give us a glimpse of what freedom could look like for us on the other side. So, and, and, you know, the the very practice of solitude is laying down the gun. Yes. You know, so just, just determining that I, as a leader, I'm going to practice solitude is a regular and routine way of laying down all the ways I usually cope with life and being vulnerable, naked, present to the one who, you know, who can do more than I could ever do with whatever it is that I'm relying on in my life. So the practice of solitude and silence is a way actually, of laying down the gun. Unless you're using solitude, for instance, to avoid. Right. So, you know, you want to be careful of that. If you're using solitude as a way of avoiding, for instance, conflict, then hopefully in solitude, God will start to give you the courage and the grace and say, you know, for this journey to continue, you're going to have to walk into that conflict. You can't avoid this for the rest of your life and be healthy. Yeah. Well, the place of our own conversions, courageous person who uh, lingers there long enough uh, to find their way through it to, to the other side. Uh, Ruth, why don't you lead us through a prayer that will close this episode? Yeah, so here's another prayer um, from Pastor Ted Loder. Oh God, gather me now to be with you as you are with me. Keep me in touch with myself, with my needs, my anxieties, my angers, my pains, and my corruptions, that I may claim them as my own rather than blame them on someone else. O Lord, deepen my wounds into wisdom, shape my weaknesses into compassion, gentle my envy into enjoyment, my fear into trust, my guilt into honesty. O God, Gather me now to be with you as you are with me. Amen. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening and being a part of our conversation today. As part of the launch of the expanded edition of Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, we're offering some special bonuses when you purchase the book. So if you'd like to take advantage of that, just visit us at transformingcenter.org for details. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we would love to know. Please leave us a comment wherever you listen to the podcast and subscribe so that you will automatically receive upcoming episodes.